It's time for OWC Radio, Tech Talk with Creatives, conversations with host Serena Catania. Peter Broderick is one of the world's foremost experts on distribution strategy. He's the former president of Paradigm Consulting, and he spends every day, all day, helping creators maximize their revenues, decide on their distribution strategies, and he helps them make a living doing the things they love to do. Peter, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Serena. It's uh, exciting to be part of your show. Tell us the kinds of projects that you work on. I do concentrate on documentary, and I can explain that because I only agree to consult with filmmakers when I'm confident that I can make a meaningful difference for them. And with documentaries, it's always possible. And with fiction, sometimes it's possible and sometimes it's not. Well, (laughs) that's actually very encouraging. A lot of people think it's just the opposite. Let's talk about who was in control in the past and who's in control now. I can begin by explaining the difference between the old world and the new world, and then we can get to the new, new world. Does that make sense? Let's do it. Okay. So I was running a finishing plan called Next Wave Films from 1997 to 2003. And we were helping filmmakers, mostly filmmakers who were making their first film, and these were mostly fiction features, find the resources to finish their movie. Then we would help them find distribution. And ultimately, our idea was to help them launch their careers. Our poster child from that time was Christopher Nolan. We did his first film, Following, which he shot on a budget of $12,000. And we were able to give him finishing funds um, so he could complete the film. And then we took it to the Toronto Film Festival. Then he went to Rotterdam and won the Rotterdam Film Festival. And he was off to the races. The film had theatrical distribution in the U.S. and around the world. And it gave him the chance to make Memento his next film. And uh, he's never stopped since then. Wow. That's a fairy tale success story. That's right. But he he deserves all of it because he's, he's just so talented. And you meet him and in about 15 minutes of conversation, you know he's got it. It's like watching the first few minutes of following whatever it is, it being the, that kind of quality that gives people opportunities uh, to, to go great places. Um, he has it. So what are those qualities? I, I know you say it's hard to describe, but can you go into a little bit more detail about the qualities that somebody might need in order to be the kind of filmmaker that you or your partners might want to work with? Well, let's start with talent. I met him at a panel. I hadn't heard about him before. And after the panel, I went up to him and asked him about following, which was the film he was working on. And I said I was interested to see it. It wasn't quite done. Um, He gave me, uh, I think it was a cassette of it at that time. And then I started watching it. And literally, within 10 minutes, the first 10 minutes of the movie, I'm like, this guy is just brilliant as a filmmaker. He was working with virtually no resources and he made this incredibly compelling thing, but it had not just a a feeling of originality and it it kind of sucked you into the story, 
but also you felt that he was in total control of what he was doing. So I think uh, if you look at Chris's career, you can see the diversity of films he's made, and and many of them are very challenging in terms of the, the content, the story, the complexity, but he had a vision of it before he shot a foot of the film, and he was able to uh, carry it out, you know, brilliantly. So first is talent, and I think that he's, you know, head and shoulders above so many emerging filmmakers at that time, and, and he's, I think he's one of the best filmmakers in the in the world now. But he also has a, a determination to make films and to make them in ways that feel right to him. He started in, um, he's British, he started in the UK. You know, he had a short, some people saw the short, um, but he couldn't really get um, many opportunities because the UK is much more traditional in the sense of um, people sort of rising to the top, or at least at that time it was. And he, so he moved to the U.S. And then in the U.S., you know, he had the chance for more people to, to kind of see his work and recognize his talent. You can't help but be impressed when you meet him by his um, maturity and, uh, as I say, determination. So um, he's somebody that it doesn't take long for somebody to see some of what he shot and to meet him and to know that he's got that intangible thing that leads to um, success. Do you remember what year the following was released, approximately? It was probably 1998. So the late 90s, we'll say. Yeah, and I encourage your listeners, the film is available online and it's available on DVD. Criterion even has its own edition. Um, and it's a, it's a film that if you watch it once, um, you're going to want to watch it again <laughs> because it's a very complex story. Um, unlike most films that don't, you know, require reviewing or encourage reviewing, uh, this film definitely does. Let's take a beat and go back and explore the difference between the old world of distribution and the new world of distribution. You've written some uh, very informative articles on the subject, and I'd like to share some of that information with our listeners today. In the old world, and by old world, I mean a situation where a filmmaker makes a film, makes a distribution deal, and gives all the rights to that film to one distributor for years and years and years and years. Could be five years, seven years, 15 years. And in that situation, the filmmaker has ceded all control of her or his distribution to that distributor. Now, sometimes in a distribution deal, you get what's called consultation. And in some contracts, you get what's called meaningful consultation. But basically, consultation means one phone call and meaningful consultation means two phone calls where you have you can express your opinion, but all the decisions that are going to affect the life of the movie are made by the distributor. And that includes how they're spending your money. 
You know, as I recall, uh, back then and even now, some of my filmmaker friends that uh, are looking for a distribution deal, they get all excited about it. They sign with one of these distributors, and then they discover that the debt, the consultation, uh, all of that stuff wasn't taken into consideration. And in addition to that, there were budgetary items that they hadn't expected that were being taken away from their gross profit, like travel and hotels and meals to go to festivals like Khan and, and others. And then on top of that, you add your PR and marketing costs, right? Exactly. If you don't have a cap on the marketing expenses, if you don't define clearly what's allowed and what's not allowed, um, all of the revenues, all of your share revenues can be eaten up by expenses. Yeah, and speaking of revenue, I caution people to take a good look at the distributor that they're going to be working with because some of these B-level distributors are basically just going around collecting films to add to their library, and then they batch them together and sell them as a group for a very, very low price to the buyers. And so filmmakers, in that instance, are not making any money. I think it varied a lot. You know, I think that the, the bigger problem than that was that basic approach of distributors is they throw the movie against the wall and see if it sticks. And if it sticks, they'll support it some more. If it doesn't stick, they won't support it anymore, but they won't give the filmmaker back his or her movie. So that's the worst of all worlds. They're not doing anything to support your movie uh, and they're not letting you do anything to support it. Um, So I think that when we are talking about problems of the old world, it's that there's a very formulaic approach to distribution where every film, most films get distributed pretty much the same way, which is the throw it against the wall and see if it sticks approach, which is not the way to maximize what happens to an individual film. Every film, in my opinion, needs an individual distribution strategy based on the goals of the filmmaker, the core audiences for the film, and the, and the windows. And in that case, um, your chances of succeeding are much greater. But studios don't think in terms of customized distribution strategies. So what's happening now in this new world? Is the filmmaker now in control? In the new world, ideally, the filmmaker is in control. And, and what the fundamental difference is, is that instead of making one deal where all the rights go to one company, they're split, the filmmakers are splitting up their rights among one or two or two or three or four different companies, and they're retaining control that way. So they're giving uh, certain rights to one company and other rights to another company, and in that way, they can retain overall control. So they're, they're keeping the rights to do certain things themselves, and then for specialized rights that they're not going to be able to handle, they're working with a company that's good at that. So the basic approach that I recommend to filmmakers is only give the rights that a company is good at handling to them. Don't give them the rights they don't care about. Don't give them the rights they're mediocre at handling or poor at handling. And when you think about it that way, each of your partners has rights that they're good at, And hopefully that's the way you can maximize things. There are a lot of filmmakers out there who are not going to know how to judge. That's the scary part, you know. How do they know if a company can do what they say they can do, 
Do they base it on reputation? You know, you talk about due diligence in one of your other articles. How do you decide, as a filmmaker, who you should hire to do what? Before any filmmaker seriously considers working with a distributor that has made them an offer, they need to talk to three to five filmmakers who are or have been recently in business with that company. They can talk to them off the record, privately, um, and find out, you know, what their experience has been. And if they don't do due diligence, uh, they are in danger of, um, you know, being sort of hypnotized by the distributor. The, The one thing that even the worst distributors are good at is telling a filmmaker what a great job they're going to do with their movie and how much they love it. So even the worst bottom feeders, you know, have that skill. But um, if filmmakers are doing their due diligence, they can go past that song and dance and find out what's real. Uh, And there's so many cases where there's companies that should remain nameless that have been uh, doing a really bad job, not paying filmmakers, et cetera, et cetera, for years. They're still in business. And if filmmakers were doing due diligence, they would not be in business any longer because filmmakers who had offers would find out from filmmakers who had worked with them before that they're not, you know, they're companies that you you definitely don't want to be in business with. And what I say when filmmakers ask me about should they make a deal with a bad company, I always say no deal is better than a bad deal. Hopefully, there will be other deals to come. But if you make a deal with a a bad company, you're going to regret it forever. And uh, I don't want people to be in that position. It is so sad to see someone who's been working for years to create something that they love and then watch as some of these companies just trample all over them. Can you give our filmmakers some advice about where they go to conduct this due diligence so they don't fall into this trap? Well, I mean, they can go onto the Internet Movie Database, IMDb, and find out. And then it's not that hard to find filmmakers online. Usually they'll have a website. Um, You know, you can use various... There's a piece of software called Rocket Reach where you can find people's email addresses um, if you can't find them easily, you know, without that. So you just have to do the work and you can see what companies, what films a company has distributed before, look at their website. Don't rely on the references that the company gives you because let's say they've distributed 100 movies and only two filmmakers still like them. Well, they're going to give you those two references. So that doesn't really help. Another thing that I I find uh, with due diligence, if you say to a filmmaker, how do you like your distributor? Now, let's assume they've only been in business with that distributor for a few months. They're always going to say, oh, I think they're great. That's because nothing has happened yet. (laughs) There's no uh, success or failure, really. And the distributor is always saying, oh, things are looking up and all these things are good or good things are going to happen. And then the problem is, if you ask a, a filmmaker who has been in a business with a company for a long time, how they like them. Um, they may be victims of this Stendhal syndrome where you get to love your captors. So 
you really have to cut through liking and say, you know, have you gotten paid? You know, is what you've gotten paid consistent with what your expectations were before? The payment's been on time. Has reporting been on time? Um, have they, you know, pushed your movie out theatrically as they said they would? Those are yes or no answers. You don't have to find the numbers of how much they've been paid, but um, they're not subjective. They're like, you know, you can go through a, a checklist and, and you'll know by the end of the call how it's going. And if you hear ambivalence, if the filmmaker says, well, I kind of like them, but there's these, been these problems. In my experience, where there's smoke, there's fire. If you talk to five filmmakers about a company and three or four of them had bad experiences, I don't care that one or two had good experiences. I would just stay away from that company. Are there resources that filmmakers can go to where they can find out what companies are distributing certain types of documentaries? Or do you just have to kind of just start digging all over the place? How does that working now? I think the research is way simpler these days. I mean, remember in terms of writing Hollywood Reporter, their job isn't to write critical articles about people who are buying advertising regularly in their publications. So um, I think you have to kind of look further than the kind of press release kind of stories that you see in a lot of the trades. I mean, they do do some investigative work, which can be, you know, great. I remember those well, but between looking at the websites for the distributors themselves, and I can I can tell you, if you go on a website and you look at what films that company's distributing, let's say you've never heard of any of them, and then you look how they're listed and you realize they're all genre films, um, and they've never distributed the documentary. If you're a documentary filmmaker, I don't think you want to be, you know, the first person down that route. Um, so I think you really need to look at what mix of films they have. And it's, it doesn't take long to look at a company's website and learn a lot about how they see themselves, what kind of films they focus on, and, and think about, you know, whether your film's a, a good fit. So another way to do it is to look at what films have played at the Sundance Film Festival and what, what distributors they've gotten. So um, often in the last few years, certainly, film in, independent documentaries that have done very well with critics, awards, and um, revenue, a pretty high percentage of them have played at Sundance. And so if a distributor has a number of films regularly at Sundance, that's a good sign. If all the films on a, on a website are of a certain type or they don't ring any bells, um, then that's probably a bad time. Okay, so I'm putting myself in the shoes of somebody who's just starting out, and all they want to know is, what do I need to show somebody in order to get them to represent me? So what physical materials do you need? Do you, as someone who helps documentary filmmakers, just want to watch the film, or do you want them to give you their lookbook? What do you want? Well, let me explain what I do, <laughs> because that'll be helpful to answer that question. My job is to help filmmakers design and implement customized distribution strategies for each of their films. I don't just start working with a filmmaker when the film is done. 
often I'll start working with filmmakers before they've shot any footage or even raised any money because then I can help them um, position the film, help them think about core audiences uh, that they can start reaching out to while they're in production. The idea isn't to wait until the movie's done um, before you're connecting the film to audiences. There's a lot that you can learn while you're in production. And then let's say you're, um, you're working on a teaser or a trailer um, and you get feedback to that teaser or trailer, that's going to help you. Let's say that beyond this question of what kind of distributors might be right, there may be organizations, uh, networks, that'll be excited about partnering in some way with the film's distribution. And that's something that you can do while you're, uh, again, in production. So if you approach, um, let's say you were making a documentary and you thought AARP would be a great partner in some way to support the distribution, not necessarily that they would give you money, then you should approach AARP while you're making the film, not wait until it's finished. Because if you approach them while you're making the film, they think that you're looking for a true partner. If you wait until the film's over, they may think you're just looking for a favor. So in terms of your question about what I look for, well, first of all, people go to my website, which is peterbroderick.com. And if they're interested in consulting with me, there's a form they can fill out uh, that tells me a little bit about their film. And usually uh, there's a link to something to look at. Um, often a teaser, a trailer, piece of the film, or something more. So if I look at that, look at how they're describing the movie, um, I have a core audience computer embedded in my brain, so I'm always thinking about who the audiences could be for this film. Um, and if I think it's, you know, it has real possibilities, then I'll arrange a phone call, and then I talk to the filmmaker, and that's really helpful because some filmmakers, you, you instantly know that, you know, they would be great to work with. Um, and there's other people that you instantly know uh, you'd never want to work with based on one phone call. Um, and the an example of the latter category are people who think they know the answer to every question, in, in which case they don't need me um, because they know all the answers already. And that's versus other filmmakers who are starting out and realize things have changed or are changing rapidly. They don't know the answers to every question. And, and hopefully there's ways that I can help them figure those things out. So that's the second step is the phone call. Then the third step is um, if there's something to watch, then I might agree to do an initial consultation where I'll watch that's something. Maybe it's maybe it's the whole film, even though the film's not finished. And I'll do an initial consultation of an hour with them and give them all my thoughts. And then once I've seen the film and we do the consultation, if the filmmaker wants more help beyond that, and if I feel with my partner Keith that we can be meaningfully helpful in the distribution of the film, then Keith and Al create a proposal for the filmmaker to help them develop the distribution strategy, help them build a team to get into the world, 
advise them on their uh, festival strategy, advise them on educational distribution, and ultimately advise them on distribution deals. So that's the that's the process. My my partner is named Keith Aquat, O C H W A T. He's a he's a very experienced filmmaker who I consulted with on a couple of his films. And the second time I consulted with him was it's a film called Age of Champions. Age of Champions is a documentary on senior athletes. And when um, Keith finished the movie, the best offer he had for all rights was seventy five thousand dollars for everything. And he he decided to turn that down and he did what I call hybrid distribution, which is what I was referring to before, splitting your rights, controlled his distribution and ultimately was able to generate uh, one and a half million dollars in revenue. So once, <laughs> you know, I consulted with him and he was able to do that and I saw incre- how incredibly talented he is and he was he also was like the you know help I gave him. Then after a couple of years, uh, he split up with his partner, and we had the chance to work together. And now we've been working together for several years, and it's been it's great because he has expertise that complements mine, and I have expertise that complements him. And he's a he's a great guy, and it's really fun to work with him. So for us, um, the first window uh, is festivals, but it's also conferences. So now we're thinking, you know, nonfiction, and there are, uh, depending on the content of a documentary, there are probably, you know, a number of national conferences where, you know, people in that field are getting together to discuss issues. So when you think about most festivals or local events uh, with a local audience um, and an odd conglomeration of movies. They may pretend that they're international events, but pretty much they're local. Whereas most national conferences uh, are national at least, um, and it's focused on certain content, and the leaders in the field are are there. So those conferences can be enormously helpful. And aside from the sort of major, major festivals, um, they can be more helpful than uh, most film festivals. We've written, there's a, a bulletin that Keith wrote on my website called Supercharger Distribution, which is about how filmmakers can use conferences as part of their strategy. So anyways, first window is festivals and conferences. The good news about conferences is they're private, considered private events, and they don't interfere with your festival premiere. So what is the next step? So the second stage is theatrical distribution. And my my view of theatrical distribution is that a little goes a long way. So, for example, you could open in New York, play a week. Maybe it's a regular booking. Maybe it's a, a four wall situation where you're you're renting the theater for that week, and then you can get reviews, you can get press attention, you can you know start to create some excitement. Maybe you want to do one more city. Maybe that city is Los Angeles. So it makes it, you know, in that situation, you would qualify for Academy Award considerations. That was going to be my next question. How many cities do you have to break in in order to qualify for the Academy Awards? It used to be five, but now I believe it's down to two. Now it's just two in New York and L.A. But the thing is that every filmmaker, you know, may dream about getting an Academy Award. But in a typical year maybe 160 films are eligible 
and only 15 of them are going to get shortlisted. Only five are going to get nominated. And in reality, being shortlisted does pretty much nothing for the life of a film or for the career of a filmmaker. So you're really gambling 160 films trying to get into five five spaces, the nominations. And a couple of those spaces are typically always gone in a year. So let's say there's two sure things that are going to be nominated. That leaves three spaces for 158 movies to (laughs) approach. It's not inexpensive to qualify. I think typically people are spending something like $20,000 to do it. So a lot of times I'll discourage filmmakers from that and say there's other things you can do with that $20,000 that are going to be certain to help your distribution. Whereas you're just gambling that $20,000 on getting shortlisted or nominated. Where is that $20,000 going? Is it for the theaters and PR and marketing? It's basically, you know, the idea of four-walling a theater in each city with with a little, little bit of press. It's that simple. Now, if they're doing a regular booking, then, you know, you're not paying for that, but you still will have other expenses. I mean, in New York, You'd probably need to pay a publicist if you were going to open theatrically. The least you'd need to pay them would be $5,000. To rent a theater in New York for a week is is generally about $10,000. So right there, that's that's $15,000. So maybe it's 20 or 25, but it's, it's uh, adds up pretty quickly. So that that's the second window. And the, the thing is that there's a lot of documentaries I've worked on that, have been very, very successful that never did any theatrical distribution. And there's plenty that did theatrical distribution and, and weren't successful. So my attitude toward theatrical is that you can do it, um, it can be helpful, but it's not essential. What is the next window then? So the next window after theatrical is what I would call special event screenings. And these are usually one night screenings in cities across the country. And some documentaries have done 500 of those screenings. And that's been uh, really, really helpful, both in terms of building awareness and generating revenue. You could consider those screenings, which are rental screenings. So somebody's paying you a rental fee to show the movie. Um, So it's revenue and it's awareness. Now, you could consider that the first part of educational distribution. The second part of educational distribution is where you're actually selling copies of the film to colleges, universities, companies, government agencies, foundations, et cetera. And for documentary filmmakers, educational revenues are often the biggest source of revenue or the second biggest source of revenue. So that's a really important window for them and you, it has to be long enough. Um, it has to be a minimum of six months of sales before you can make the movie available at consumer prices. TV could happen while you're in educational distribution, that's fine. But being on iTunes or being on Amazon or Netflix, whatever, that's the final consumer stage. And it's really important when you're doing windows to go window by window, maximize the possibilities in each window learn from what happened during that window, refine what you're going to do in the next stage. And in some cases, things are going really well. So you'll extend the window 
In some cases, they're going poorly and you'll shorten the window and move on. So with documentaries, I really recommend filmmakers, when the filmmakers make their strategies to not think about day and date, the idea that the movie will be, be available on all platforms simultaneously, which is probably the worst idea <laughs> I could think of for uh, documentary distribution. Instead, think about stage-by-stage -stage distribution where you're refining your strategy as you go, learning a lot, and then uh, hopefully maximizing things. It seems that a lot of filmmakers put all of their eggs in one basket, and that is the, I wish I could get on Netflix, and all our worries will be over. Well, <laughs> um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of magical thinking. You're absolutely right about that. And, and I, I discourage magical thinking. I think it's good to have goals, but my job is to help filmmakers find a balance between optimism and realism. Um, and if they're just, you know, living in cloud cuckoo land, um, you know, it's, it's uh, not likely to have a happy ending. I think part of what's happened here in the last 10 or so years is the democratization of the process and the cheapening of the equipment that's given a lot of filmmakers the chance to make their movies and many of them are wonderful but a lot of them are not so all of a sudden we have thousands of movies that every year everyone's scrambling to figure out because they're young and they just jumped in with both feet or they just bought the cameras and they started filming their wonderful idea and now they're going okay now what so I think there's a service here that you're offering that could really find the next Christopher Nolan. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Definitely would be. Well, the, the thing about democratizing equipment is correct. I mean, when people started making films digitally in the late, uh, like 1998, 99, 2000, that was a huge shift because filmmakers could afford to own the means of production, which was just a digital camera and a laptop. So nobody could stop them from making a movie, which was, you know, amazing. But now with distribution, because distribution has changed, the new world, and we're about to talk about the new, new world, um, nobody can stop them from distributing their movies. And so when you think about your strategy and you think about, well, you know, let's go back to the windows now. Okay, so let's say you make a film I mean, you apply to festivals, you don't need a distributor to do that. You reach out to conferences, you don't need a distributor to do that. You want to be in theatrical distribution. So if you can't find a, an overall deal that you like, and I always discourage those deals anyways, you could do a service deal where you'll hire a booker. The booker will pitch your film to theaters. Um, the booker's working for you, so you'll control what she or he does and and the cost of it and hopefully you'll start out with a kind of realistic um approach maybe you just want to play two cities um and then you've had limited theatrical distribution don't need a distributor for that okay let's get to the next stage the idea of special event screenings around the country you absolutely don't need a distributor for that let's go to the next stage of educational sales well up until recently I recommended to filmmakers that they always get an educational distributor. But now things are changing, and I don't want to get stuck on this, but more filmmakers are doing educational distribution themselves in a very targeted way. 
and in some cases generating a lot more revenues than they would if they went through an educational distributor. So it would be great to have an educational distributor, but again, not essential. Then in terms of being on TV, PBS, for example, you don't necessarily need a distributor to approach um, TV opportunities. And then finally, um, there's consumer distribution. So there's a way to be on Amazon without any distributor. There's aggregators that can help you approach Netflix and uh, iTunes. And whether they're distributors or aggregators, you know, I guess the term's a little fuzzy. But so there's so much of your distribution that you don't have to have a distribution deal to do and to do well. So it's it's a revolution in distribution that's in the new world. And I think that uh, the idea that filmmakers can be much more creative, much more targeted, much more proactive than if they just turn it over to a company that has a whole pile of movies and it's going to, you know, throw them out into the world and hope for the best. You also talk about indirect sales and how filmmakers can achieve a higher margin Can you talk about that for a minute? That's a really crucial idea. So when a filmmaker is making a deal with somebody, what they, she or he definitely should do is retain the right to sell directly from the filmmaker's website. And there's, you know, you can sell DVDs. There's still a lot of DVD sales, particularly educationally, although maybe that's, you'll do that through your educational distributor. But um, they also want to be able to sell the movie digitally from their website. And there's various services that can do the back end for you. So basically, in that situation, not only are you making more money on every sale than if it was going through a, dis- a distributor where you're splitting the revenues, you're also getting the names and email addresses of the people who are buying from you. And the- you're not going to get them from Netflix, and you're not going to get them from Amazon, and you're not going to get them from iTunes. And I can't overstate the value of having customer data because those people not only um, can be supportive of, of the movie that you're, you know, putting into the world at that point, but hopefully if you treat them right, um, you can take them with you to the next films that you make. And the thing that correlates with a sustainable career is having a personal audience. Now, maybe you start with 50, 25, 50 people in your personal audience, and then you build it person by person. And I can talk more about, you know, how to do that. But eventually, you could have, you know, hundreds of people or even thousands of people that are excited about you as a filmmaker. um, And they can not just buy things from you. Um, they can, you know, spread word of great word of mouth about your films to their friends. They can let you know about opportunities. Maybe there's opportunities for money for the next film. Maybe there's opportunities for partnership. They can be a great testing board for potential trailers, maybe even rough cuts at some point. Having a personal audience is so helpful. And it's also helpful psychologically to know that there are people that are going to be there for you through thick and thin. You're right. I mean, building your personal audience is akin to establishing relationships with your fans and your super fans. And I think that those relationships are very important. And you as a filmmaker and your personality and how you react for and with other people 
is very important as well. I think that for people to understand and how important networking is in this world, but it's also to do it with a positive spirit, not to do it with some kind of cynical pragmatism. But you like other people and you want to see how you can all help each other sooner or later. With that attitude, um, you know, you can win a lot of friends. Um, so I think that we shouldn't under, underestimate the importance of genuine charm and also the importance of networking in this world. At one point, a few years ago, I was consulting with a filmmaker who had a film in the Berlin Film Festival. And I said, okay, here's my advice. When you get off the plane in Berlin, they live in Los Angeles, I want you to network nonstop until you get on the plane to leave Berlin. And then I paused and I said, no, wait a minute, that's wrong. When you get on the plane in LA, to the time you get off the plane, when you come home to LA, um, I want you to network. So that, that that's just so important here. And you'll, people who are genuinely helpful to other people and um, supportive, uh, it's all going to come back to them in, in lots of ways over the years. I remember in the very early years of Sundance, some of you may know Lori Smith, who was a programmer for many, many years. In the beginning, it was hard to find filmmakers that we could approach to get them to allow us to screen their films. I mean, I actually had some that would say, well, why do I want to do that? And my response was, why do you want to make a film and then put it in the closet where nobody ever sees it? I mean, don't you want to make these movies because you have a story to tell and a message you want to share? So, Peter, I just really appreciate what you're doing for people. This is so important. And one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on and the reason for some of these questions is to instill in people's minds how technical some of this is and how it takes years of experience to know who to call and to know how to put these strategies together. I guess we could do it by ourselves. We can. You can, you know, you can jump into the ocean and swim and paddle, but if you're lucky enough to find partners to work with, people who can help you, then I encourage everybody to do that. Filmmaking is exhausting. You're in production, then you're in post-production, and many creators, including myself, sometimes struggle with the money to make these projects. It's a lot easier to make a big Hollywood movie, to be honest with you. You know, when you have $200 million a year of the studio's money to play with, it's really easy to make movies. But when you're spending your own money or when you're trying to raise money, then it's a lot more difficult. So I'm very grateful to you for sharing this information in as much detail as you have. You've been incredibly generous. I think we need to wrap up part one of this and invite our audience back again on our next segment on OWC Radio, where we will go into specific detail about the festival scene and virtual screenings and that side of things. So we are giving you right now a crash course, and I encourage all of you to go to peterbroderick.com where you will be welcomed into the wilds of independent filmmaking. And Peter and his partner have an amazing virtual crash course on cutting-edge distribution strategies. It's called Supercharge Your Distribution. It lasts for several weeks. It's well worth it. You'll be in with other filmmakers who think alike and who can all share information, and they are creating an amazing community there. So stay tuned. We'll be reporting more on this on OWC Radio, and hopefully we'll bring Peter back again 
when he starts his second crash course. In the meantime, stay tuned because next week we're going to go into the deep dive of film festivals. And hopefully you guys are getting a lot of information about this. I encourage you to write to us at owcradio at catania.us, and that's C-A-T-A-N-I-A dot U-S. If you like our show, please like and share and give us a review. You can hear us on any of the podcast aggregators, iHeart, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. Please visit owcradio.com. You can subscribe there as well. And we'll see you on the flip side. This is Serena Catania. I'm signing off, but before I go away, remember what I always tell you. Get up off your chair and go do something wonderful today. Thank you so much, Peter. It's been great spending this time with you, and we will talk with you again next week. 